Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litbeck, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Ryan A. Quintana, author of Making a Slave State, Political Development in the Early South Carolina, published by by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018. Dr. Quintana is Associate Professor of History at Wellesley uh, College. Making a Slave State examined how enslaved African Americans built the state of South Carolina in the literal sense of the word, from roads to canals, from buildings to military fortifications, Quintana examined how not only enslaved people were central to producing the state's infrastructure and early governing practices, but also how they claimed these same spaces for themselves. Dr. Quintana, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Derek. Uh, It's a real pleasure, and I'm a a big fan of the New Books Network, so uh, I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm glad we could have you on. So I guess to get things started off, can you tell our listeners how you came to this subject? Why did you become interested in it? Uh, Okay. Um, I mean, there's lots of different answers to this question. Uh, Part of it is that uh, I'm from the South. Uh, I grew up in Alabama and Nashville. And so I, you know, wanted to study this particular time period, so the late colonial and early national era, and I wanted to, to study the South in particular. Um, when I went to graduate school, I, I, that's sort of all I knew from the jump. And, and I kind of had started to think that I would um, work on a project related to slavery because um, I was really interested in trying to write a book about the South um, that I hadn't really seen before, right? So there are a lot of monographs, but it, it, they didn't really say speak to the experience of, of the South that I have, which partially is the consequence of being Mexican-American and growing up in the South. So it, what, I didn't have a sort of what I think uh, a lot of people would imagine would be a sort of a very typical Southern experience. So I just wanted to sort of explore what that could be. Um, when I got to graduate school, I worked with Tung Chai Winnie Chakle, um in one of his seminars on uh, space and uh, history. And uh, I was really drawn to that. And so I knew sort of shortly after that, that I would be focused on uh, trying to understand um, space. And, and initially, what I wanted to look at was how do slaves produce space sort of full stop. And I was mostly interested in plantation spaces. But as I sort of moved forward with the project and um, sort of developed as uh, a historian, I was drawn increasingly to the study of the state and at the same time was seeing uh, sort of throughout the source material the number of ways that the, that slaves were producing what seemed to be the state. So either working on canals or building roads, uh, that their labor was being called on to support troops and to build fortifications. So, you know, it was sort of a, uh, a happy uh, sort of confluence of a lot of different things that were of interest to me. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm particularly drawn to these, to both theories of the, of the, of space and how it's produced, uh, like Henri Lefebvre and uh, Stuart Eldon, um, as well as ideas of the state. Like I'm really always kind of been curious about what precisely is the state. And so you know, those ideas, plus wanting to do a social history of the um, institution of slavery that focused more on the experiences of the everyday lives of the enslaved is what sort of led to me focusing on this particular topic. 
Yeah, and I know, for myself, I found it very interesting and kind of refreshing to have, you know, a study that is really kind of intimately about the kind of built environment and what that means, both for the institution of slavery and for enslaved people themselves. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think that um, uh, to to be able to I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in South Carolina, but, um, you know, when you're on the ground doing this kind of research, you start to experience the built environment in a really different way, whether it be, you know, um, you know, I think sort of how do people navigate these swamps that are in the low country? How, what is it like to, to sort of go from Columbia down to the coast? What is that experience like? And, you know, I was really sort of drawn to runaway advertisements and you know, people would be talking about folks running away to the swamps or running away back to plantations. And I don't know, when you're, when you're there, you can really get a sense of how dense these swamps are and how much work it would have taken uh, to transform these spaces and, um, you know, how, how much that was a part of everyday life in a place like South Carolina in the 18th and early 19th century. And I also was really sort of wanting to write something that I, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to say that I've been disappointed with books that focus on politics and slavery, but I feel like often the missing actors in those narratives are often the enslaved themselves, right? So slavery plays a really big role in political history, but the enslaved often don't, like their actual everyday experiences. And so I wanted to really look at that built environment, but also try and put uh, individual enslaved people into that narrative of state building. Yeah, I think you do a really good job about it. And so speaking about, you know, the state and the space and the very beginning of your book, you kind of give us this term called state space. So what is this and why is it important for your study? Right. So, I mean, state space is, I mean, I, I think the the very short answer of this question would be um, territory. Right. But I, I think territory can be kind of limiting because it, it has a, a very... Um, sort of elicits a particular kind of response, particularly from folks like geographers, right, who in the 1990s were thinking we need to move beyond this idea of territory as the scale around which we sort of investigate space and geography. So, uh, but uh, what I'm interested in is territory is a very real thing, state, space, territory, they're sort of synonymous. Uh, and when you think about the state, you can't untangle it from the space within which it exists uh, and which it creates as a matter of its existence. And that can be sort of perceived in any number of ways. So I think when people think of state space or territory, uh, you can think of the maps that we see of national and of local state spaces. You can think of borders, like the physical boundaries of nation states, how they're made manifest. Um, and you can think of what internally is it that sort of signifies the state and its being and its becoming. Uh, and for me, that would be sort of roads, uh, sort of infrastructure. Um, but also, you know, what I try and make clear is that territory isn't just these divisions that are imposed on it from an entity that sits apart from 
everyday folks, the government that's in scare quotes, but you can't see me, <laughs> um, but is instead the consequence of everyday activities, right? So space is the product, not just of state planners or of engineers devising where a border should go or where a road should go, but it's also the consequence of people moving on that road back and forth, bringing its meaning to life, challenging its meaning uh, in some ways, um, and allowing for the sort of mental ideas of space to come into being or the imagined idea of space to come into being. So, I, I mean, in that way, I'm kind of trying to riff off of uh, Henri Lefebvre and thinking about space in this sort of um, tripartite way where on one hand you have like the sort of physical space itself um, that becomes state space, but also you have imagined space. Um, so, or mental space where people are challenging it, bringing it into being, thinking about it, experiencing. And you also have social space, right? Which is space as defined by particular kinds of signifiers or symbolic meaning. So one way that you might think of social space would be, you know, uh, road signs, for example, sort of signaling to you that a particular road goes to a particular place, right? So it allows you to imagine this path as oriented in a very specific kind of way that transforms our experience of the physical space um, and its experience through mental space. So that's a, a jumbled way of saying I'm trying to, to not just look at the physical space of the state itself, but how is it this, this thing space gets produced, right? And space being not just the physical space, but how we imagine it and experience it as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, to me, you know, someone who doesn't study, you know, space in the same way, you know, looking at sort of the mundane features of what makes up space, you know, a road. And, you know, I think most people, including myself, maybe before coming to this book, would look at a road and be like, well, it's just a road. It's what's used to transport goods or what have you. And, you know, your book really shows like how many, as you were just saying, there's many layers to this space. And when we're talking about, you know, enslaved people, building it, using it, you know, there's a lot of meaning there. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think you know, one thing that I, I mean, I always try when, I, when I'm explaining it to, to my students here at Wellesley or when I'm talking about my book to folks is, is trying to get people to, to sort of think about space as, um, you know, this, this thing that we can, we, we navigate through on a regular basis uh, and it feels intuitive. And so we don't put a lot of conscious thought into it. but a lot of that is the consequence of the ways that space has produced in a, a variety of ways, right? So that there are already existing signifiers or symbolic space which allow us to or dictate to us how we navigate particular kinds of spaces, uh, as well as ways that we challenge that and fit it into our own sort of imagined worldview. So it, it is a, a fairly complicated thing. And one of the things that I'm also was really interested in with this book was thinking about the genealogy of space. Like how does, how is it possible for the state space of South Carolina to be produced at this particular moment in time in this particular way? And one of the things that I wanted to put at the center of that was that it was the labor of the enslaved and the enslaved themselves that made the particular state space of South Carolina 
a possibility. Uh, so even allowed it to be imagined into being, right? Uh, and one of the ways to think about that is that when you're building a road or when you're building a canal, one of the most important things is uh, imagining <clears throat> that you have the tools at your behest to be able to produce that space, right? That's like the first step in thinking of how you might produce space. And, um, you know, I, I, what I was trying to make the make clear was that it was only through the, the experiences of the enslaved that state space was even able to be imagined into being in this particular moment in time. Yeah. And so speaking about the, you know, the labor that these enslaved people are performing and the multiple meanings that can be derived from it, you point out that South Carolinians, um, the people who are owning these enslaved people are using the labor of their slaves to kind of develop their own understandings of belonging within the state of citizenship within the state. So how is that happening? Right. So, uh, I mean, I have a lot of different examples of this in the the book, but I, I think one way to think about it is uh, I'll give a few different examples here. Um, so one way would be that how roads get produced in British colonies in the 18th century is that it's sort of a sort of boilerplate legislation that folks that live within a certain distance of any particular infrastructural development, usually roads, but occasionally bridges and causeways, that men between the ages of 16 and 60 and the, the sort of end year varies with legislation that they are required to come do work when called upon by local road commissioners who are appointed by the provincial government. And then after the revolution, the state government, right? So the enslaved tend to not always, but particularly in the low country where they make up over 90% of the population for the better part of the 18th and 19th century, right? I mean, it's, it's the enslaved make up the bulk of South Carolina's coastal population. So there, which is also where the, the bulk of uh, traffic, social and commercial occurs, the enslaved are the primary men who are sick between the ages of 16 and 60. So whenever the state or the province wants to interact with everyday South Carolinians, white South Carolinian men, primarily, so the citizens uh, or the subjects of the state, um, they will simply call upon them and say, here's where you're supposed to be to do this particular kind of labor. And they signify that in a lot of different ways. They put signage up on trees, they'll put notices in newspapers. Um, and then to sort of enact their responsibility as South Carolinians, which I would argue is their way of becoming state subjects, right? By perform either by rejecting or agreeing to this labor that the state is demanding. They are sort of being caught up in a, a kind of relationship with the state. And for many wealthy South Carolinians and just everyday South Carolinians, the way that that occurs is by sending their slaves to do that labor, right? And so that's how I'm, I mean, it's might seem a bit <clears throat> tortured when I talk about it, but 
you can see this kind of activity as a citizen or subject performing their role as South Carolinians and that they're only able to do that through the labor of their slaves, to me, sort of signified that their citizenship, their idea of of being a subject of the state was enacted by and enabled by the enslaved and their labor, right? When they deny that labor, and I have an example of like Henry Lawrence being asked to do his share of labor. Henry Lawrence, he becomes the second president of the Continental Congress. He's one of the wealthiest slave dealers in South Carolina in the 18th century. Um, and he owns multiple plantations toward the right on the eve of the revolution, one of which is the indigo plantation. And he is asked to do his to send his laborers to do their normal annual work on the roads. But it's at the same time that the indigo is um, becoming ripe and it needs to be processed right away. Otherwise, it'll be ruined. Uh, and so he sends a letter and he says, you know, can I can I get just tell me what to do and I'll do it later on um, after this indigo has been processed. And the road commissioner writes back and says, you know, this you can't do this, right? Like if if they allowed every other person to to do this, then they would never have any laborers to work uh, on the roads. And, and Lawrence sort of, I see that you see this in letters that he's sending to his overseer, uh, but he says that, you know, he recognizes their, uh, their sort of reasoning behind demanding his labor then. And he makes the, the sort of argument that this is for the public good and that all citizens need to send their labor and do their demanded state labor to be good citizens. Right. Um, and, What's fascinating to me is in these letters, you see him thinking about what is the common good? What is the relationship between a citizen and the state? And what he's really talking about is the labor of his slaves, right? And so he's thinking about this big idea, which he has a very sort of significant hand in shaping in the revolutionary moment, and he's doing so through the labor of his slaves. And for me, I was, it kind of struck me as somewhat similar to kind of the, you know, small R Republican, you know, yeoman farmer idea that comes about towards the end of the 18th century. It's kind of very much kind of a central plank of the Jeffersonian Republicans and that, you know, to be a good part a good part of the United States, a good citizen, everything like that. You have to perform labor and everything like that. And there's this idea of independence with everything. And it it almost seems like there's this sort of competing vision for that for slaveholders who are thinking in very much the same ways earlier on, but through their enslaved people. Yeah. I mean, I I think, I mean, I think it's, uh, um, I mean, I think that's a really, a useful insight and a good way to to try and explain it. And I think what's fascinating to me is, and I think part of what um, inspired this book too was that there are a lot of ideas that um, I think a lot of people look back to the early part of the nation and and um, sort of put on a pedestal. And I, I'm not suggesting that's what you're saying at all here, but just rhetorically, people in general, something like republicanism, something like the common good or this, the early state or liberalism, um, things like that. And 
what was what's fascinating to me is to see the centrality of unfreedom or slavery or exploitation or violence that sits at the center of these ideas right and so one way of thinking about that would be to say something like well you know i th- i think sort of the historiography up until recently even would have said that you know sort of the presence of slaves and the institution of slavery had sort of um, warped those ideas for Southern Republicans. What I would argue is that that gives meaning to this idea of republicanism or state sacrifice or the common good or citizenship for everybody, right? And so it's not just this like isolated thing in the South, but Southerners are deeply implicated in shaping those ideas, Southern slaveholders for the rest of the nation. And so, you know, they're not the only voices, but they definitely are sitting at the center of devising what those things mean. And at the center of their lives is the exploitation of enslaved men, women, and children. And going off of one of the examples that you uh, brought up, you know, I I remember the Henry Lawrence one very vividly because I remember thinking, wow, this is pretty interesting. Um, And him trying to, you know, get around sending his enslaved labor at a certain point in the year and everything. And one of the points that you bring up is that South Carolina develops its own sort of state power by infringing on the property rights of the slaveholders when needed. So what is that about? You know, I was really uh, drawn to this. When I was initially drawn to this topic, I was uh, checking out Robin Einhorn's book about uh, uh, taxation in the nation. And and I remember... um, that she had talked about how one of the things that was different about the South as opposed to the North, and she was looking at the differences in sort of federal power was um, the inability of local governments to to infringe on the property rights of Southern slaveholders because they were they sort of had such strong ideas about no one infringing on those rights, which is familiar a familiar narrative to American historians because that seems to be um, so much of the rhetorical center of this idea of quote unquote states' rights or you know slaveholders' rights so that this seems to be a powerful um, trope throughout history. But what you see when you look closely at the documents is that the state is sort of consistently engaging with and sort of transgressing what we might perceive to be the sort of uh, the strength of individual property rights in a place like South Carolina. So whether it be, you know, road commissioners had to know the number of enslaved men and women who resided on plantations. For a lot of historians, that seems to be a sort of, uh, you know, uh, something that slaveholders would only give sort of uh, when pushed to do so. But what I kept seeing was that they pretty willingly gave that information to road commissioners. I mean, there were a handful of people who wouldn't give the information or were, you know, sort of under report so they wouldn't be responsible for either taxes or um, labor. Uh, but you see the, the state sort of regularly asking, demanding for information, demanding labor. And then in the revolutionary moment, which I think is often remembered as popularly as a sort of individual patriotic 
people performing their individual patriotic duty, what you actually see is that it's often having to be forced by the state, right? And so you know, I have the example that during the revolution, when the South Carolina's revolutionary government wants enslaved labor to create the spaces of defense and security, uh, to reinforce uh, Charleston uh, and the neck. They call upon enslaved labor and they say, you know, if you volunteer your labor, you're going to get paid this amount of money and you'll be indemnified. Uh, if you refuse to do so and you've refused to take the loyalty oath, which a lot of South Carolinians refuse to do both, then they're just going to take the labor and they'll, they'll neither indemnify it nor pay for it. Right. So you see the, the state as an entity, as a government growing in power, and you see it pretty consistently infringing upon what I think contemporaries today would perceive to be um, this sort of hallowed ground of slave owners' property rights that they defended tooth and nail when in fact it was regularly assailed by their local governments. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really interesting to think about the the kind of actual history behind all the myth-making that goes on kind of throughout American history and then in our current time about, you know, the kind of sanctity of property rights and all of this and, you know, how government doesn't get in the way of individual people. And your book is really showing like, no, like when people said, you know, when people tried that line with South Carolina, South Carolina said, well, okay, fine, you can say that, but we're still going to take what we need. Right. I mean, and I think I think the memory of it changes sort of right after the revolution and it starts changing in South Carolina. But South Carolina state government is a fairly strong entity. Um, and it, you know, it, it lacks. I think part of why we miss the sort of these central states in local states as central states um, in the early history and why we tend to miss uh, sort of the presence of a a sort of powerful state in the early nation in general, right? So the the typical narrative of governance in the United States, and this has been changed by people like by William Novak and Brian Ballag uh, have really, amongst a, a bunch of other historians, have really challenged the narrative that the American state really only grows after the Civil War. Right, that's when you begin to see like a really powerful government. What Novak really does a good job of doing in the people's welfare is making clear that if you look at state and local governance, you see really heavy-handed governance. Right, I mean, you see just everyday government happening uh, to people, and it's just something that doesn't fit with, I think, the contemporary libertarian imagination of the past or this sort of idea of the liberal sort of beginning of the United States. Uh, but if you, if you just sort of scratch the surface of early national history, you see the presence of government, whether it be local or state or even federal, uh, you see it you know, pretty easily. And speaking of, you know, kind of pushing back on, you know, established narratives and the kind of the common way of thinking about things, you talk about the movement of enslaved people. And I think 
most people, including myself, are used to thinking about enslaved people's movement being heavily policed. And you make the point that while, yes, it is policed, there's also a lot of leeway going on and it's kind of necessary. So what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I I think when we imagine the institution of slavery, and I mean, I, I think I have been as guilty of this in the past as as anyone. It's it's really easy, I think, to imagine it as this history of confinement, right? I mean, Winthrop Jordan and White Over Black, he makes the argument that really the distinguishing characteristic of enslavement is confinement. And Stephanie Camp made a similar argument. And I don't think they're wrong. I think I think in a lot of ways they're right. But what they're they're one of the things that happens when we, we think about the institution of slavery is we tend to flatten it out in terms of how it changes over time, right? So we, we have a lot of information about the late antebellum institution of slavery, whether it be in the United States or in Cuba. And in both of those instances, I think confinement is a really defining characteristic, but I think it's really different earlier, right? So I think one thing that uh, I'm trying to say is let's pay attention to how the institution changes over time, right? And so in the late colonial and, er, and revolutionary and early national period, it's a period of uh, sort of rapid growth um, in terms of the geographic location of plantations, how those plantations are connected to coastal ports, uh, to other plantations, right? Uh, that a lot of Larger plantations along the coast are owned by the same person who owns multiple plantations. So in in the book, I point to Henry Lawrence and Charles Drayton, but there are a lot of folks like this, the Middletons, for example. And uh, I think when we had this sort of particular kind of gaze where we were thinking late antebellum institution of slavery or what Tony Kay and others call second slavery, right? And then imposing that backwards, we're thinking like, oh, well, when Henry Lawrence owned multiple plantations, he just had lots and lots and lots of slaves, many, and they're all sort of isolated on all these different plantations. The reality is that they're sending slaves from plantation to plantation, right? I mean, some there are some folks who are, are sort of confined to plantation spaces, but there's a lot of movement happening between these plantations. And if you think about the plantation, instead of it being this sort of bounded, and when I imagine bounded, I always imagined fences for some reason, uh, but this bounded space that people are confined within. If you instead think of it as a node within what Max Edelson would call like a, the plantation enterprise, um, or you, and that they're all, it's a big part of a, a sort of humming commercial activity, right? So the goal is to create goods that are moving rapidly to commercial centers to, to ship it across the Atlantic and beyond, right? That requires a substantial amount of movement. And it's the enslaved who are doing the bulk of that movement. And so the question then is, how does South, how does South Carolina or any government reconcile the necessity of enslaved movement, which is required for the growth and maintenance of uh, the plantation enterprise with the desire to sort of ameliorate all of their fears of the enslaved um, and 
they do so through heavy policing of uh, folks or through their confinement. So how do you reconcile those two things? And I think how they reconcile is they pay a lot of lip service to confinement and policing. uh, But when it matters the most, they tend to let folks not move at will, um, but move more freely than we've probably imagined in the past. And with this movement, as you say in the book, you know, there's a lot of meaning to the environment and to the space and everything like that, that these enslaved people are helping to build or building by themselves and everything like that. And so, you know, they might have to go from one plantation to another on a road. And they, as you've said before, you know, this road might have multiple meanings and multiple kind of registers. And so how does this kind of lax enforcement of these laws and the kind of leeway and movement, how are they able to use that to their own advantage? And how does this help them kind of come to their own ideas of the world around them? Right. I mean, I, I, I think one thing I want to make is to say that right off the stop is like, off the top is that uh, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, right? Like, so I'm not trying to imagine like the emotional content of someone's experience, but what we do know is that, um, and this, we know this from, um, newspaper accounts. We know this from militia reports. We know this from governor's reports. I mean, it's, it's really visible, um, you know, in, in the, the historical record that the enslaved are using these spaces for any number of things, right? That they have uh, what are can perceived to be sort of illicit trade networks. Um, like, you know, in Charles Drayton's diary, he talks about uh, finding out that his enslaved boatman has sort of stopped at this well-known bridge, Rantoll's Bridge, which is sort of near the Stone Oak Creek. And he's just been off the boat for three days. Um, so, you know, he's, it's just one brief diary entry, but what could he possibly have been doing were the kinds of questions I was asking, trying to ask myself, right? Drayton writes in his diary, rogues, exclamation point, right? Which to me means that they, they were doing everything but what they were supposed to be doing. (laughs) And, you know, to me, that was trying to figure out what the possibilities of what that could mean, right? And so it meant trying to explore the some older historiography and looking into the sources, particularly about the African diaspora. So looking at religious and cultural practices, uh, trying to, to get a sense of, well, what is the population in South Carolina at this time? So in the 1760s, there's a sort of rapid growth of the enslaved population through the importation of West Central Africans. So that helps you get a better sense of what kinds of cultural practices might have been going on in the swamps and forest of the low country, right? What kinds of things were going on in slave cabins? Um, and so, you know, I turned to get some of those answers to historical archaeology, to the history of the African diaspora. Raz Michael Brown has a fantastic book about West Central African cultural practices in the South Carolina and Georgia Low Country, um, and I, you know, I leaned really heavily on the research uh, that he had done. And he had—he's a historical linguist, and so he'd done a lot of important work trying to get a sense of just some of the cultural practices that were happening then. And so, what I argue is that in these 
during these travels, which are necessary for the production of the state, for its maintenance, for the production of the plantation enterprise, that the enslaved are given loads of opportunities to enact any number of practices, right? And um, I think that sort of what I was trying to do is say that when we when we often think about these kinds of practices, these sort of cultural productions, we perceive them as resistance, right? As people running away and doing it. And there certainly is a lot of that happening. But I wanted to make the argument that even in their sort of daily required activities, that they're also doing these kinds of acts. They're also uh, sort of producing these kinds of um, ideas of space that are laden with their own cultural understandings of space and their own ideas of how to survive, whether it be through trade or uh, meeting up with loved ones, uh, you know, participating in burial practices or other kinds of religious activities that once they're within that space um, that's created for the maintenance of the plantation enterprise, they can, there's a number of things that they could do. Yeah. I mean, for me, I find it so interesting to think about the myriad of ways that enslaved people are kind of able to utilize systems designed against them for their own benefit. And in this case, as you know, your book is really pointing out, you know, it's not even that they're designed against them, but they're built to be against them. And they're using their own labor to be built against enslaved people. And yet they're still able to carve out some space for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, there's the story that I kind of, one of the stories that I end the book with, which is this, um, and, it's an unnamed enslaved person who um, is working on the Hamburg Railroad uh, or the Hamburg Railroad, which is you know the first long distance transportation railroad or passenger railroad built in the United States. The South Carolina is uh, sort of the first of many infrastructural developments, and they use that. Um, he uses that railroad, which is transporting cotton and people, to hide to make it back to Charleston and. He then sort of lives in Charleston really briefly, going to the places that his owner had sent him to trade goods before. So, you know, all of this so far, his experience had, is really sort of oriented around what he'd been forced to do as a laborer. And it's through that space and that infrastructure that he constructed that he finds a way to leave South Carolina and makes his way to, to Boston and writes his narrative, right? So, yeah, I mean, I found that kind of stuff really fascinating also. Right. This, I start that way, the book, with a similar story with the, the Stonehill Rebellion, which earlier generations of historians sort of argued, wondered whether or not it was because they were out building roads that the enslaved had gathered. But it seemed pretty clear to me from the evidence that that's precisely how they had come to know one another. And the Stonehill Rebellion starts on that road that they're building uh, to connect sort of the center of South Carolina, Charleston, with this expanding Southern plantation enterprise. One of the points that I really liked about your book was how you discussed the relationship between slavery and the development of the institution and the development of a modern state in South Carolina. Because a lot of people for a long time, and even still today, you know, and I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with this, they kind of 
make slavery in a modern state incompatible. You know, you know, the kind of idea that slavery would have eventually died out even if the Civil War hadn't happened because, you know, slavery, it, it just it wouldn't have worked in an industrializing you know nation. It wouldn't have worked in a modern nation state blah, 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 you know, the usual arguments and everything. And you're saying, one, South Carolina is, you know, at this time becoming a modern state and they're doing it on the backs of enslaved people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, in this way, I was like trying to follow the lead of, I think, the the sort of generation of historians of slavery and capitalism, right, who've sort of made it really clear that that, that assumption, which I think you're right, I I think historians of the South and slavery, right, would say like, oh, well, that's an, a really old argument. But I think the bulk of people, like everyday folks right, who aren't professional historians, sort of would agree with the idea that like slavery is this pre-modern institution that was just bound to die off, right? So I saw part of what I was doing as, as built into that project of trying to understand the relationship of the institution of slavery to what I perceive to be like modern political economy and, and really to be more even clear, modern liberal political economy. So what we would perceive to be sort of, I think, a very familiar sort of idea of the state or of political economy. So that, that was a big part of what I was um, trying to, to work toward. And, and yeah, I mean, I think when you look closely at a place like South Carolina, it's easy I think for folks who either aren't from South Carolina or who uh, are just sort of familiar with the the sort of brutal history and brutal sort of racist history of the state, to to overlook um, the sort of their forward motion in the first part of the nineteenth century, right? Whether it's um, you know being amongst the first states to build long distance summit canals or the first states to build um, railroads or one of the first states to have an institution of higher learning to provide free education for uh, poor folks, not every poor folk to be sure, uh, but for some, right? So they're doing all these things that to, I think, contemporary eyes would resonate with like, oh, well, that seems like, you know, what people imagine the, the modern state is doing. And they're not doing those things on one hand, and then on the other hand, there's this brutal institution of slavery happening, and they're sort of moving away from each other. What I try and make clear is that they're hand in hand, right? That that modern state that's coming to being, it's relying on tax revenue that's produced on the backs of the enslaved and the physical infrastructure of that space and of those that kind of state is it's being done through the labor of the enslaved. Yeah. And I mean, and when speaking about things like that, you know, like public education, railroads, canals and everything like that. And I think a lot of people, they, they still kind of associate those things with, you know, the quote unquote North and, you know, something like say Massachusetts and their strives towards public education or, you know, the Erie canal and everything like that. And that are supposedly created through free labor and everything like that. And you're, really pointing to you know something that's happening one before this and you know it's it's like you said hand in hand with unfreedom yeah and i I think we can we can today we it's probably beginning to be easier for people to imagine that right but it's still i think for people to imagine it it's through the this kind of 
historical work, but you can think about something like the work that's being done at Georgetown or Brown or other institutions of higher learning, where they're trying to uncover the important role that slaves played both in, in sort of funding those institutions as topics of, of study as, you know, um, the, the great book Ebony and Ivy, where it's looking at like the long history of both colonialism and slavery that sits at the center of Ivy league institutions, but, you know, also the work that people are doing on those uh, college campuses as enslaved laborers, whether they're, you know, porters or, cooks or building the actual physical places themselves, right? I mean, I think, again, when we think about, to go back to one of your earlier questions about sort of confinement, another consequence of imagining the institution of slavery sort of through the prism of its later iteration, the sort of antebellum iteration, is that it's caricatured in a way as like cotton plantations, right? Uh, I mean, I think that's what would immediately come to people's minds and rightfully so. Uh, but, you know, it takes a lot of different forms and it's ever present in so many different ways and not just in the South, right? I mean, it's uh, very present in the North. Uh, it's very present in the nation's capital, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think this was my way of sort of trying to, to posit just one amongst a lot of different ways that the that slavery plays a significant role um, in producing the the nation and in this particular instance, South Carolina, but more importantly, the enslaved themselves, right? I mean, I think I wanted to, my major goal here was to put men, women, and children who are being exploited at the center of the story. Yeah, and I, I think you do that very well. And, you know, before we finish off this interview, I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and read and hopefully buy, you know, Making a Slave State by Dr. Ryan Katana. And so to finish this off, can you tell us, you know, we've, we already have this great book. What else can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? So what I, at the end of one of the chapters, uh, kind of going back to our early question about this idea of citizenship, um, I kept finding all these instances where enslaved, usually enslaved men, but not exclusively, um, but enslaved people were being executed by the state. Um, and when they were being executed by the state for what, you know, usually for crimes, but also for what people perceived to be like the potential insurrection, so potential sort of rebellions against the institution that when those executions occurred that states like South Carolina and Virginia um, and sort of other British um, plantation societies would compensate slave owners when the state executed the enslaved. Right. And when they did that, they, um, they would sort of refer to that as what we might imagine as eminent domain today. Right. So uh, I see this in petitions to state governments where owners of slaves who aren't compensated but want to be compensated will say, well, their property had been, quote unquote, destroyed for the public good. Um, and when a person's individual property is destroyed for the public good, the entire public should pay for it. So what I'm working on right now is trying to investigate this longer history of 
what I perceive to be as sort of slave murder, but slave deaths, and how it's very early on sort of woven into uh, an understanding of the public good, right? And so part of that is coming out of, um, I think, the long history of the murder of African Americans by state powers and seeing that not as an aberration, but seeing how it's actually kind of a constituent part of the early nation's history and that that's part of the problem that we continue to exist within is that we exist in a nation that early on hypervalued uh, African-American deaths as a constituent part of the public good. So that's that's where I'm at right now. It's, it's kind of in its early stages, uh, but there's a surprising amount of information out there in the archives about this. Well, that's a pretty interesting topic. I know I would certainly be interested in, in reading a book on that. Um, hopefully, whenever that's done, we can have you back on the program. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Katana, for coming on the program with us. Thanks for having me, Derek, and I really appreciate the opportunity. 